Welcome to the South Asian Voices Subcontinental Podcast, where we'll be discussing security, strategy, politics, and the history of South Asia. I'm your host, Samir Lalwani, and we're joined today by the Stimson Center's co-founder, Michael Crapon, Manpreet Sethi, who's a senior fellow and head of the Nuclear Security Project at the Center for Air Power Studies in New Delhi, and Sadia Taslim, who's a lecturer at Qadi Azam University's Department of Defense and Strategic Studies in Islamabad. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, we'll be talking about some diverse issues from the subcontinent, uh, but most recently we had a very provocative, we're coming off the heels of a very provocative uh, uh, set of conversations from the Carnegie Nuclear Conference, uh, one of them which was a, an idea uh, advanced by one scholar from MIT who said that we might be observing India moving towards a counterforce targeting strategy based on some comments and, and sort of strategic sort of assessments being made by various former and current national security advisors, uh, national security leaders. Um, so I'm curious sort of the reactions to that. I'm actually going to start with Manpreet. You can tell us, what are your thoughts on this? Did you, did you find it compelling, his arguments? Do you, what are the implications of this? Where do we go from here? I was quite surprised actually to hear him make, uh, making these remarks, you know, because this is just not the conversation that I've heard in Delhi, uh, where anyone is talking about moving from the no first use to the first use posture. He specifically said that India would not allow Pakistan to go first, that it will go, go in for a preemptive strike and there will be an opening salvo uh, with a full comprehensive counterforce strike that attempts to completely disarm Pakistan. And he was picking up bits and pieces from you know different people's writings to prove his, um, his hypothesis. Uh, but I think India has no such illusions of being able to carry out a massive counterforce strike, not today and not for the foreseeable future, because we are just not working with that kind of a strategy where you're moving in for a first strike. Uh, given that the doctrine is no first use, and the Prime Minister at the highest level has said it several times that it will remain no first use. Um, you know, for a credible first strike strategy, you need to have an arsenal which is of a different kind, which would mean large numbers, MERV missiles, accurate missiles, good early warning system, very good, uh, you know, uh, uh, logistics for carrying but out. But some the of these things India is developing, right? They are starting to MERV some of their missiles. They're starting no, to build up their forces. No, there has been a lot of discussion about MERVing of the missiles, but we are not moving in that direction yet. I think that's this is a very critical juncture for India, and given the. Uh, nuclear sort of cacophony that we are hearing around us, there could be a possibility that you go in for moving of missiles. But right now, uh, that that's not a decision that has been taken in any form. So for me, no first use remains a credible deterrence strategy for India, given the philosophy that it has that you need deterrence by punishment. So uh, Vipin's, uh, I think, hypothesis uh, came out of uh, certain interpretations that he made of different people's statements. And I have a different take on what those statements were. Saudi, are you as confident uh, in, in Manpreet's assessment that this is actually not really happening in India? Uh, so I can't like really make a statement on whether it is happening in India or not, but I uh, found these statements, I found Vipin's comments very alarming uh, in, an, in a number of senses, not just uh, on the content of what he was talking about, but how it is going to be perceived, particularly in places like Pakistan. And I think that uh, to some extent, I thought he overanalyzed uh, some of this stuff. Uh, and I thought like, yeah, it's very easy to make predictions. I, I do respect Vipin's uh, scholarship, uh, but it's easy to make uh, like alarming predictions, uh, drawing on worst case in a scenario and all. but. There has to be a certain degree of responsibility with regard to what we are saying because uh, 
uh, of the nature of impact that our conversations can actually have on policy making in different parts of the world. So I don't really know how Vipin's uh, statements are going to be received in India and whether India is actually going in that direction or not. But I'm really, really concerned about the fact that this is going to be uh, a very serious uh, issue of discussion in Pakistan. I completely endorse that view. You know, it's, uh, you know, he was saying that there's a, that India's massive retaliation will not be credible to a tactical nuclear weapons use. And then he says that the massive preemptive, you know, use would be credible. The huge contradiction here. I, I mean, if India is not going to do massive retaliation, when it's going to be relatively legitimate and you know guilt-free in doing that, how would India do massive preemption? Yeah, and on That's that, I would also uh, say, like, despite the fact that I uh, think India is very diverse in a sense that you get to see um, uh, when you look at BJP's politics, it's very different from uh, from how like Congress does its politics, and we could sometimes sort of. Uh, become very uh, alarmed and concerned with uh, what Modi's uh, regime can and cannot do. And they might actually revise or revisit some of the things that India has uh, uh, has built over the past few years in terms of its conception of policy. Uh, but it also needs to be seen as to whether uh, these kinds of decisions are, 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 are these decisions that easy? Like you have to think about uh, what would be India's uh, position in the larger diplomatic arena. Is it just about India and Pakistan, or is it about a lot of other countries that are also involved? And like, there could be huge diplomatic repercussions. India has been very concerned about its diplomatic profile, at least in the past, on a number of um, uh, occasions, uh, including Kargil. So I'm not really sure that uh, like these things will translate exactly into those kind of actions that Pippin was anticipating. So we get two votes for skepticism. Michael, do you think? Even if we don't take sort of the hard interpretation of Vipin's remarks, do you think that there's something to it about this search for flexibility in, in, in India's doctrine or to, to improve some credibility in their works? A lot of military analysts, retired flag rank officers in India, have been calling for flexibility for a long time. What gives Vipin's argument um, some impulse is that he's quoting from a very respected former national security advisor, Shivshankar Man, who has now seemingly come aboard. But I'm skeptical too. I'm a third vote. It's not just the requirements of prompt counterforce capability, which are huge in space as well as on land. But it's also, this would require a massive shift in Indian strategic culture. Absolutely. I was just going to bring that up about strategic restraint being <clears throat> such an important component of, you know, the Indian behavior mm. over so many years. So for us to take that step about the use of nuclear weapon, and also Michael, if I can say about uh, flexibility in the Indian nuclear doctrine, uh, and Vipin has particularly quoted uh, the NSA, former NSA, to say that flexibility. That context is essentially uh, from massive retaliation. That there's flexibility in massive retaliation, not in flexi flexibility in no first use. Mm. Uh, so there's a misrepresentation, I think, there. And on this particular point of flexibility, I would also like to add something, which is uh, it, we have seen both India and Pakistan struggling to... Uh, Bring some kind of some kind of flexibility to to the way they are uh, contemplating their doctrines and to the way they are sort of building their post postures. 
बट या येट लाइक इट्स इट्स अ वेरी स्लो एक्सक्रूशिएटिंग प्रोसेस ऑफ अंडरस्टैंडिंग वट सर्टन डिवेलपमेंट्स मीन्स मीन फॉर दोज कंट्रीज एंड आई डोंट रियली थिंक दैट इज अ हाई डिग्री ऑफ क्लैरिटी आई डो नॉट वॉन्ट टू अंडरमाइंड द इंटेलेक्चुअल कैपेसिटी ऑफ द इंडियन पाकिस्तानी थिंकर्स बट आई डू थिंक दैट दिस इज ऑलवेज अ वेरी रफ प्रोसेस इवन फॉर द यूनाइटेड स्टेट्स for russians or uh, uh, india australia soviet union this is a very difficult process to go through like talking about doctrines there were, there were always claims and counter claims there was always uh, this this conversation was always very very broad and there were lots of voices some very respected voices were repudiated in the united states uh, when it was also going through the same process it's not like uh, one voice is going to hold uh, against an, uh, another voice the struggle for diversity will continue Uh, I think that both sides will continue to go for like more flexible options, and yet, uh, is it going to turn in turn into such a such an alarmist uh, scenario as Vipin was uh, predicting? I think that's not going to happen. I It think your I think your point is deserving of retelling about how this is going to be received by the nuclear requirements folks in Pakistan. and i can see them also moving in the direction they already are of counterforce capability uh, not just on the tactical and operational level but also on the strategic level and neither country has the ability uh to find targets in real time Leave alone do a splendid first strike. Leave alone do a splendid first strike. Which makes so, it more alarming because if you have that ambition without those capabilities, then you can actually start getting into serious crisis, instability issues. If you if you can credibly convey you have that capability, then it probably deters the sort of escalation from the outset, or it, theoretically. But I think what Vivin's warning about is because he says at the very end of his remarks, he's very clear about it that India does not have these capabilities right now, and what's worrisome is. is what this discussion that sort of maybe outstripping capabilities in some way so you are taking the discussion in, into a direction where like it involves the question of instability instability itself is like it's a it's such a complicated uh, question such a complicated phenomena over the past 10 15 years we have been wrestling with the idea of what instability is what kind of instability south asia is going through and like uh, what is going to be like the ultimate uh, point of armageddon um and uh, there are so many like variables involved in this conversation i was in uh, in prague two or three months ago and we were having this conversation and uh, somebody brought up this point that india and pakistan have serious instability problems because they do not understand the idea of doctrine the point that you essentially are making like they are building up stuff but there is no conversation on doctrinal issues the kind of english conversation that is required to bring some sense of instability and uh, i raised this point that uh, and which i still do not have an answer to as to whether pakistan and india were more stable back in 2005 or are they more stable today there was lesser conversation on doctrines there was lesser con- lesser even lesser understanding Focus. of the entire like uh, nuclear uh, uh, issue uh, there was lesser sensitivity towards a lot of those things uh there's much more sensitivity much more conversation much more understanding as compared to 2005 and yet we find ourselves increasingly moving towards more instability right so it it's a very very uh difficult terrain to move into uh, into muddle through 
yeah. when we talk about like Vipin's uh, uh, Vipin's argument, what what becomes very um, uh, much like a source of concern for people like me is uh, if we are if we are uh, sort of straight jacketing certain phenomena, if we are uh, sort of projecting a perception that uh, uh, there is a linearity to what is being uh, done. That could have very, very serious potential consequences for not only like our understanding of, of these issues, but also for policy making in both countries. So you made a really important point, which is that implicitly that much of this discussion of deterrence is based on psychology, and this is what we know from the work that Nervous has done and other scholars. So with that with that idea of thinking about sort of the psychology of uh, certain actors, uh, this seems like a very good time to pivot to another conversation, which is the current U.S. administration. So we have some interesting events unfolding over the last few months here in the United States, and obviously the United States were sort of engaged in very intense navel-gazing uh, about what's going to happen, domestic politics, international politics. What's the perspectives from uh, Delhi and Islamabad? Uh, what, what do you expect from this administration, both the, the leadership but also from the, the agencies, the bureaucracies that will continue to go on doing the things that they do. Maybe we can start with what's going on in Delhi. Uh, I would say that uh, before uh, candidate Trump became President Trump, there was a lot of writing which was fairly alarmist in India about what Trump would mean uh, you know, for the region and for India in particular. But once he's occupied that presidency, uh, you've seen less of those kinds of writings appearing in the media. Uh, so the general sense right now is that Yes, on the H-1B visa uh, issue, he did create quite a flutter in India about you know what it would mean. But there were some voices which were also saying it might be good for India to keep our brains uh, back home rather than mm. send them all out into the U.S. Uh, no, but uh, you know leaving the lighter side of it aside, but the, it is going to be an impact on the economy. Uh, but the fine print on H-1B visa is yet to be seen, and I think there are enough people within the U.S. who are also saying that it's going to be you know affecting them adversely too. So uh, we we yet to you know see this. I think uh, at the highest level, the American, uh, the Indian uh, National Security Advisor and the Foreign Secretary have already visited uh, uh, Washington to make their concerns felt on that. Apart from that, at the bilateral level, I think uh, the core strategic partnership is likely to continue. Uh, one doesn't see a bump coming there. Uh, more of concern would be how uh, the Americans deal with their relationships with Russia. Because if there's a patching up between the U.S. and Russia, then uh, it brings greater hope to us uh, because of the you know misgivings that Russia has had about India's closeness to the U.S. Mm. So if there's a closer relationship there, that'll be good for India. Also, Russia will be less drawn towards China, uh, which is developing into a strong relationship today. So that also is a matter of concern mm. for us. And of course, the U.S. relationship with China, because if there's going to be a disengagement in that region of the U.S., uh, then uh, the filling up of the vacuum by China is a matter of concern for India. So therefore, the U.S.-China relationship, and if U.S. is able to keep China on its uh, on its toes on many of the issues, uh, that I think will be something that will be useful for India. Uh, so before we go on to Islamabad, let me just follow up with something, and maybe Michael, you can chime in as well. Uh, Ashley Tellis, you know, recently made some points that the Obama administration was characterized with a policy of calculated altruism towards India basically without expecting sort of direct returns, making investments in India's sort of strategic future through its support of the U.S. India nuclear deal, support for MSG membership, uh, 
some you know support for its seat on the Security Council. Um, do you expect that level of altruism to continue with the current administration or into the future? It's difficult to say. You know, yesterday Chris Ford was saying everything is under review right now, and I, I <laughs> yeah. would I would endorse that because we don't know what would be that India would be expected to return uh, in exchange for some of the so-called favors, though India believes that it's earned a lot of those, uh, you know, uh, measures. Uh, so um, I think overall the trend would remain the same. It's not so much altruism for uh, the U.S. It's also because they gain in the process of of seeing India being able to look after some right. of the countries. Right, calculate altruism. Whether it's on the energy front, whether it's on, you know, containment of China, there are certain paybacks that do come to the U.S. as a result of that. So I think more or less we'll see a similar trend continuing. Trump has already said he would be supporting India's membership into the NSG. Uh, his, take oh, yes. on, his, yeah, his take on terrorism is something that would be of interest to us. You know, How is he going to look at the issue of terrorism and what does it mean in terms of uh, the US relationship with Pakistan? That I think is a space that we'll be watching carefully. Michael, do you agree? Let's go to, I'm interested in Islamabad's one perspective from Islamabad. So I would say contrary to what uh, Manpreet uh, uh, suggested about uh, what was happening in India pre-Trump uh, election and victory, um, in Pakistan there wasn't really much alarm with regard to Trump at least before the elections and most of the people that I spoke to before the elections were, were actually uh, already predicting that uh, this, there was a higher likelihood for Trump to come to power which was quite strange for me because on the day of election I was in in, in DC and uh, people were not expecting Trump to come to power. <laughs> and the next day like, there was a serious, uh, uh, people was in a serious state of shock. Uh, back in Islamabad, uh, there wasn't something uh, which surprised a lot of people because they had already uh, predicted that it's, it, it was very, very likely. And, uh, well. And, and, and most of them were not uh, necessarily alarmed with the idea that Trump would come to power for the reason that they already had been, like there has already been this calculation in Islamabad that uh, the interest of the United States was gradually waning from uh, the region, uh, also from Pakistan. So there was uh, this notion of uh, a diminished interest that had already been there. With regard to Hillary, there was this uh, idea that she was probably going to be a very tough taskmaster. Uh, and, would, and and because Pakistanis had uh, interacted with her a lot when she was uh, the Secretary of State, uh, they they uh, they had certain notions about her. With Trump, there was uh, it, they were clueless, so they were not as alarmed as as uh, as a lot of other people were. Uh, but after the elections, when uh, things uh, started uh, sort of uh, a lot of things uh, started happening. Uh, the government of Pakistan has so far been very, very cautious. Uh, Foreign Office has been very cautious. It has not been uh, um, making statements even on issues which are fundamentally questions of principles and issues where even uh, states in Europe have been taking positions and saying that these mm -hmm. are probably things that need to be condemned. Foreign Office has been very cautious uh, when there was this uh, immigration ban, uh, this decision on immigration ban, uh, particularly imposed on some of the Muslim majority countries. Uh, Foreign Office said that it's, it's a domestic issue of the United States and they are like of course free to do whatever they want to. There wasn't a single word of criticism. There is a lot of reaction within the common people and there has been this concern 
particularly with regard to the visa regime. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, people like Imran Khan made statements that uh, like we would be uh, well off if if there is a visa restriction because uh, of, because it's going to prevent brain drain. Mm -hmm. uh, but majority people do not agree with that, and uh, particularly the elite in Pakistan has. Uh, always had, uh, traditionally always had a comfortable relationship with the United States and the elite does sort of um, look at the United States with a sense of inspiration and awe. So they, of course, do not want that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of an obstruction in, in, in the relationship. But when it comes to like the core issues, uh, the policy issues, I think uh, mostly people uh, say that like we have to wait and watch it's a uh, the uncertainty is is so huge. obvious and so huge uh, and there is this realization that uh, uh, it's not the it's not the pakistani side that's going to call the shots right uh, it's the americans who are going to make the decisions and pakistanis would ultimately uh, have only a couple of choices uh, as opposed to like a, a lot of freedom to exercise in terms of making those choices uh, but there is some degree of uh, uh, of uh, relief in a sense that Pakistanis are getting too close to China, and they are pretty comp at least the at the government level. There is, uh, 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 well, I'm not privy to what is happening behind the doors, but uh, the public position that the government officials take suggests that they are pretty uh, pretty comfortable with getting closer to Chinese. Um, also, the Pakistan and Russia are warming up. Uh, so uh, that is uh, also something which is uh, uh, easing Pakistan's concerns uh, with regard to how great power politics is going to unfold and, and whether Pakistan remains relevant to the United States or not uh, uh, is not something which is a very, very serious uh, um, concern for, uh, for at least a, a significant number of people. Uh, there are, of course, uh, uh, some voices that continue to suggest that Pakistan needs to explore uh, how to improve these ties and Pakistan needs to keep its options diverse regardless of whether there is uh, a, a, a closer relationship with Russia and China. Pakistan should not like, put all its eggs in one basket and, and keep uh, on sort of uh, building itself too much into one block. Uh, that's uh, going to constrain the long run, that's going to constrain like a lot of uh, a lot of options for Pakistan. So what I'm picking up from this is that a lot of uncertainty, everything's under review. Uh -huh. uh, but I'm glad you brought up uh, China, Saudi, because um, that's sort of a, an area that we're all starting to think more about what's, what, what is China's role in South Asia, or we can call it Southern Asia because of its presence there. Uh, what are its ambitions? Uh, Michael, you've been thinking a lot about this. Wh where do you see, what do you see the sort of the Chinese approach and strategy here, both in terms of its investments, its arms sales, its presence in the region? Uh, and then we'll ask more about like, sort of what the reactions are from, from the two sides. Uh, my sense is that China is doing very predictable things. And it's filling in the, in the wake of the U.S. gravitational shift toward India. And we can all envision uh, closer military cooperation, uh, arms transfers followed by production, co-production of aircraft, um, perhaps even missiles, uh, and other kinds of military equipment. Uh, it's, it's utterly predictable. 
And I think it's up to our colleagues in Pakistan to figure out, as Sadia has said, um, if we were too, in Pakistan, overly reliant on the United States, and that did not serve Pakistan, should we become overly reliant on China? And would that serve Pakistan? So that's, that's a calculation, I believe, that's required in Rawalpindi and Islamabad. And it's a hard calculation because if you feel that you have been scorned by the United States, then the natural reaction is to overcompensate. So, Sadia, can you tell us a little... Uh, I completely I completely agree with uh, what Michael has said in terms of uh, the need for recalibration uh, on uh, and particularly like revisiting where we went wrong in the past and not repeating those mistakes. I think uh, even in Pakistan, if you look at the mainstream press, you get to see that there are lots of voices, uh, sane voices that are questioning this idea. There, there is a lot of skepticism even with regard to CPAC uh, and like not necessarily the idea of CPAC, but the idea that there has to be more openness with with reference to the terms and conditions that the government uh, has uh, sort of uh, concluded with uh, with China. Uh, and there is a, a lot of conversation on the need for more transparency. So I think that uh, uh, within the civil society, within the, uh, uh, within the uh, academia and intellectuals, uh, there is a, a, a realization that we would not want to repeat those mistakes, but it is for the government of Pakistan to eventually make a decision as to uh, how how they are going to prevent uh, themselves from falling into that trap that they have uh, followed in the past. When breathed from Delhi's perspective, is China's engagement with Pakistan in a much more intensified way uh, concerning and alarming, or is it normal geopolitics? Both of them, I would say. China-Pak relations have always been very close, and uh, uh, they did cause several sort of repercussions in the region, which we are all aware of on the nuclear and the missile front. Uh, today, with the economic uh, and strategic relationship, I think with both, it's it's important for both countries actually. Earlier, it was only Pakistan which used to feel that need for it. Today, China also uh, needs Pakistan uh, to substantiate a lot of its economic, you know, activity that's going on in the region. Uh, so, the matter of concern for India uh, at a personal level, I would say I'm happy if the Pakistan economy begins to do well because that then uh, gives you a stake in the survival of you know future of the state. Uh, but uh, in terms of CPEC passing through a corridor which is uh, part of Indian territory is a matter of concern. India has raised it with China, uh, but uh, China has not shown sensitivity to the Indian concerns, despite they themselves being extremely sensitive on several of their you know, concerns about territorial sovereignty and autonomy in general. So that is where I think India's major concern lies with CPEC. So I think we've raised more questions than answers, but that's what happens in the age of uncertainty. So thank you all for, for joining us today. It's been a really great interaction with Manpreet, uh, Sadia, and Michael. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with us on South Asian Voices and Subcontinental. We look forward to future interactions. Thank That's you. all for today. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening. Tune in next time for the SAB Podcast. I'm your host, Samir Lawani, signing off.